we're about to hear a uh, un- unpacking of God's word. This is God's going to speak to us. This, are you ready? Are you ready to hear God address you? This is very personal. We've got a woman and Jesus having his personal encounter and, and that's the kind of talk we're going to have. So I, I hope that you're ready. Um, just uh, I'd encourage you to, if you are not in the habit, I'd encourage you to get in the habit of having a Bible in front of you. My personal encouragement would that be like a paper one, not, a, not even a digital one. Just so helpful there. And the reason I say that is not just because that you can look at it and check to see whether I'm on track and whether I'm actually speaking God's words or not, but also that when I am on track, hopefully most of the time, and you hear me saying something and then you look down and you see the verse where God says it, and you're like, oh, and you hear God say it to you as you just, re- just, I think it's just a really great habit to get into. I encourage you for that. Um, we do just one other thing. Um, uh, I'm really looking forward to the Music uh, Encouragement Day. So that's on the se- Saturday, the September the 17th. So not this coming Saturday, which is next gen, but the one after that. So if you are a tech guy or girl, if you are a musician, uh, it's going to be a really great time with Trevor Hodge, who's written a bunch of the songs that we sing. And uh, yeah, I reckon it'll be really important. Uh, do RSVP. Al Bain is not from Gen Y. He's not from Millennial. He doesn't He doesn't get that, like, the fact that none of you have RSVP'd yet doesn't mean that you're not coming. He's a little freaking out. So, you know, just to make Al's nerves improve, if you could RSVP at some point soon, that would be encouraging for him and encouraging for others as they see you clicking going on the Facebook event and things like that. Um, it just means that, um, yeah, we, uh, we remind, oh, yeah, that's right. All my, all my, all my music mates are going to be there. It's going to be a great day. Um, I'm going to briefly pray that, uh, that I'll do a good job of unpacking this incredible passage. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for loving us. We thank you for Jesus' encounter with this woman. Father, we just pray that I would, I would get out of it, that I'd unpack what's really there, what you would really have us hear. And Lord, that you might speak to us personally and deeply tonight so that we might find water that is alive and life and food for our souls. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the theme of water is definitely continuing. It's been Baptism City for the last bunch of weeks, hasn't it? Uh, and Jesus and John the Baptist ministries almost seem to be on this collision path of competitiveness as they both sort of rise in, in uh, popularity, Jesus more. But Jesus doesn't seem to like this dynamic, right, that's forming. He doesn't want the competitive thing. And whether that's because the Pharisees are getting interested in this operation and he doesn't want that kind of, uh, doesn't want that kind of um, sort of competitiveness between disciples that we saw last week or whether he doesn't want the Pharisees sort of um, scrutiny. Either way, he says, okay, I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to head back to the north to Galilee where I came from. And so he's got to pass through Samaria to get there. Now, I hope you've managed to come along each week so far in this John series. Because if you have, you've started to build up this deposit of knowledge about Jewish history, right? Because John's gospel, it's it's self-consciously the climax of the hopes and dreams of this Israelite nation. And so the Christ is a figure you can only know if you understand the story so far. And these early chapters are the first reveal of the hero. Now, Spider-Man No Way Home. Has anyone seen this movie? I saw this movie. It's a brilliant movie. Um, but um, I just know that Mel won't get it, right? I'm not going to sit down and watch Spider-Man No Way Home with Mel. Not because she's not a quick study, but because it pulls together literally decades of characters from different sort of franchises of Spider-Mans. Like literally, we get three different Spider-Mans. Spider-Mans, Spider-Man, I, I don't know how you even say this, right? Three different Spider-Man in the one movie. And you can't, enjoy just how much 
of the characters, the bad guys from the different series, like the decades, literally, like I've lived through decades of watching these movies and all of a sudden my, my life, my pop culture life has been pulled together in one. Even if you went back and watched them now in a week and then went and watched that movie, you wouldn't enjoy it like someone who over decades has lived this culture and all of a sudden someone pulled together their childhood into one big thing. Now, let me fill you a little bit in on Samaria because Samaria has some history. This is the lived history of Israel and this gets pulled together in this uh, passage. So, Abraham's family was called to save the world. God, at the very, this is in Genesis, right? We're right back at the start. God decided, right, just destroying everyone, you know, and then just keeping the one good guy, Noah. That didn't save us from sin. Sin seemed to be present in Noah's family as well. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to call this family to save the world. Abraham's family. Now, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, his name was, you know, uh, the deceiver, the, the, the leg puller. Um, but his name was changed to Israel. And so they settled in this area, particularly, you might have noticed from this reading, in this area, in the area of Samaria. That is where Jacob, Israel, dug this well, the well that Jesus and the woman talk at. He had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, due to a famine, Jacob and the sons go to Egypt, save the world, eventually become slaves. God leads them out of Egypt through Moses eventually. And when they leave Egypt and come back, they bring, this generations later, they bring Jacob's bones with them to this place, Shechem, this special place, this, this area. This is Jacob territory that this story takes place in. And Jacob is the father of the nation. Now, years later, the nation splits. Okay, splits into the north and the south. Southern grouping becomes known as Judah. The northern grouping becomes known just as Israel. They could have been a bit clearer on that, couldn't they? Israel's the whole thing, but Israel's also just the northern. So eventually, it looks a bit like this, where you've got Galilee of the Gentiles, where there's just like people from everywhere there. They're barely Israelites. Samaria, the half-breeds, and Judah at the bottom. So what's this got to do with Samaria? Well, Samaria is the capital city of that cluster there, that that orange cluster in the middle. So when you think Samaria, think the city of those northern tribes, only it doesn't stay that way. You see, Samaria, those northern tribes, they, they, this is, this is, sorry, I, I think I didn't do the timelining well. This is 700 years before Jesus comes along. Samaria loses her way. She's unfaithful to her God, doesn't trust that God can give her what she needs. So she goes to other gods to try and get it, cheats on him with foreign gods. And so God hands her over to the nations that have those gods. And the Assyrians invade the northern tribes, conquer them totally, taking away all the rich, the talented, the powerful people, and then send back in all sorts of other nations to interbreed with them, to mix it up to mix with the locals. And the idea is to destroy their local spirit, destroy their local culture and identity. And so the Samaritans become a symbol for that. The symbol of the impure, the half-breed, the wannabe Israelites who, who, who don't actually know God, who were judged by God and who refused to travel down to the south to Jerusalem where they should to go to the temple and worship where they should. This is not just a state versus state, mate versus mate rivalry. It's complete disdain. So by the time John the Baptist and Jesus are doing their thing, there are these three regions covering this area. 
you, re do you remember the, the, the northern area? Like, the northern area is really like, well, they're just not even trying to be Israelites. Like, do you remember when Nathaniel said, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? That's the top bit. Um, but the Samaritans are more disliked because they think that they're right. They think that they really worship the God of the Jews, the God of the Israelites. They think they're true Israelites. And the Jews, that sticks in their craw. They don't like that. Uh, in fact, actually, uh, uh, a couple of hundred years before Jesus came, the, the Samaritans on a mountain called Mount Gerizim, they built their own temple. And then 120 years before Jesus was born, John Hyrcanus, who was the sort of the local Jewish king, came up and conquered them and destroyed it. Just ripped it down. He's like, no, no, you don't get to worship God like that. This is, this is real. This is not just rivalry. This is, there is religious contention between these guys. You don't get to just do worship our God however you want. Now, I don't think we can actually understand the Jewish Samaritan tension here, unless you're a racist, in which case then you might get it, because that was normal. See, see, when Jesus says, hey, can you get me a drink? We, we don't get what he just did, because even if we know that what he did was socially taboo for him, we're cheering him overcoming that social taboo, because for us, we hold different values. We live in a culture where the gospel has had this historic effect of changing what our values are, valuing people because they're human beings, not because of their ethnicity. Like, I can't say, well, look, it's like Jesus spoke to a mainlander. You know, and you'd be like, oh, wow, goodness, how do I would do? You know, there's no analogy for this in Tasmania because of the way that Jesus' teachings have changed the Western world. You see, I, don't, I can't think of anyone in Hobart that it would be politically incorrect to speak to. Is there someone in Hobart? Be in, well, I mean, except maybe a racist. Oh, you can't talk to her, you know. See, this, Jesus doing this would have got him cancelled just talking to this woman. And the woman knows it, and she is the one who calls it. Do you hear it? She says, what, what, why are you asking me for a drink? I am a Samaritan, and I'm a woman. This is inappropriate. This is, this is not cool. But Jesus doesn't let either the inappropriateness of the situation or her pushback stop him from loving her. He doesn't let the social inappropriateness stop him from loving her. So Jesus responds, well, look, actually, if you knew who you were talking to, then you would ask, hold on, I'm just going to check if I've got the right slide here. Here we go. This is, by the way, this is the area in the middle of Shechem on the, let me just see. Oh, my goodness. Wow. If you look backwards, you can see it a little better. But like, anyway, this, on one side, you've got Mount Ebal, right, which is where they're hanging out. And the other side, you've got Mount Gerizim. So they're probably on one mountain at a, at a well looking over across the other mountain. That's where they're at. Sorry. Okay, we, need, we really need to get that data projector sorted. All right, we are. There's, there is a plan, by the way. This is happening. Um, Jesus says, look, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd ask me for a drink and I'd give you living water. Now, we've had in John's gospel upgrades on regular water before. Do you remember? Like John baptizes with water, but he says someone else is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus seems here to be drawing on a rich array of words from the prophets. Like he's drawing on the old movies, the old Spider-Man movies. For him, he's drawing on the old sort of Jewish legends and all these things where water was going to be associated with the Holy Spirit coming and cleaning and changing hearts when the Messiah comes. Now, this woman, she's never going to get that. 
He's, he's, he's making these allusions to Old Testament stuff that she's not going to get because the Samaritans, they didn't, they didn't believe those other writings, the prophets. They only had the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Hey, excellent. Some of you guys got good biologists. It's good. They only had those five. So this is sort of like the opposite of Nicodemus. And, and she's almost set up like that, isn't it? Like, uh, he would... Nicodemus was this Pharisee at the very religious center from the right lineage. She's religiously and ethnically suspect. He's a teacher, you know, the, the full teacher of the full repository of God's revelation, uh, you know, a teacher of the people. She doesn't know anything except for the first five books of the Bible. He's rich and respected. She's alone and probably an outcast. So sort of we've got one where Jesus sort of debates with the elites. Now he says kind of basic things, but it's going above this woman's head. And yet at the same time, do you notice how similar like both of their responses are? They both take Jesus way too literally and both say something that sounds equally silly in response. What does she say? Uh, you remember Nicodemus said, how can a grown man go back into his mum's womb? Well, this verse 11, this lady asks, how on earth could you get this living water? You don't even have a bucket. <laughs> like it's a deep well. What are you, you, you going to do? And a little encouraged by pointing out Jesus' stupidity here, she actually has a bit of a go at Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed this. She plays the race card. This is Jacob's well, she reminds him proudly. We're Jacob people. Israel's well. Your forefather and ours. And what, you think you're better than our forefather who gave us this? All of this, this whole area? The answer to which, of course, is yes. Jesus does think that. He says that. But we get to that in a little bit. Now, look, as with Nicodemus, Jesus is willing to clarify her confusion. I'm talking about something qualitatively different to the water that you know, he says. The water that you're talking about, it only satisfies for a time. What I'm talking about will stop you ever wanting again. It's a whole different kind of thing. Now, the woman here starts to seem to, 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 to take him seriously, or at least she wants, to, she wants him to put his money where his mouth is. If this kind of water is on the offer, she's in, right? If I don't have to go and out here in the heat of the day to get water, this is good. Um, but her reason tells you that she still doesn't get what Jesus is talking about. Because it's about, it's about not having to walk out to the well. Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus, it's midday. It's hot. I've got a big jar. If, if it means not trudging, sounds good. Let's do it. Now, John doesn't mention it. But I, I, I don't know, when I read this, I feel like there's a pause here in the conversation. A, a moment. A moment where Jesus stares into her soul and loves her. Just have a look. Now, do you remember how I said she's an outcast a second ago? I, I, you might be wondering why I came to that conclusion. I'll tell you why. Um, if you had to walk a distance in the Middle East and carry a large vessel of water back that same journey distance, uh, what time of day would you do it? Right? Yeah, you're getting it. Early morning as you possibly could. That's when all the women of the town are going to go and get their water. Did you notice what time of day it is? It's midday. You'd be crazy to do it at any other time in the morning. The, the, the way that I sweat, like if I did that, by the time I got back, I would have lost the same volume of water in sweat as I would have got in the jar to come back with. There's a net, no net gain here. But this lady comes out in the middle of the day. No wonder she's keen on Jesus' offer of, you know, one time only water. 
Why does she feel a need to avoid the other women? Well, Jesus says, go get your husband. She says, I don't have one. True, Jesus says, you don't have a husband. Fact is, you've had five. And on top of that, the bloke you're sleeping with at the moment, yeah, he's not your husband either. So I guess technically, yeah, technically you're right. You don't have a husband. Wow. That got personal quick. And even in the, even in the post-sexual revolution West, people might mention that kind of history as kind of questionable, wouldn't they? But back then, it was way more than questionable. This is hugely problematic. Now, I'm not 100% certain, but I think it's a fair guess that we have found the reason why this woman draws water alone. Why she's disconnected from her community. This woman was lonely. She's unknown. Trudging to the well in the heat of the day, alone. Oh, that offer of, that offer of living water sounds great. That journey, disconnected and dissatisfied. Now, some of you might actually start to feel like, okay, if that's this woman, I can relate to her. See, it doesn't take being a social pariah to feel disconnected. I mean, if you're a mum whose life is so wrapped up in meeting your children's needs that you haven't had a conversation that doesn't involve a cartoon character for days, then, like, you might understand this kind of isolation this woman's feeling. Um, the haze of changing the 17th nappy of the day without having had time to stop and think about changing your own clothes. Like, that's profoundly isolating. Or maybe, maybe a retiree who doesn't see their family as often as they'd like because of distance or difficulty, and you can't spend the time with your loved ones that you want. Well, you, you might know what it's like to be isolated. So maybe some of you men might relate to a guy who's too busy with work, too busy with life, too busy with kids to actually have the time to share in anything deeply with any of his mates. You're shouldering the burden, the family responsibilities. You, you, you just don't have anyone to talk about that responsibility with because you're too busy doing it. That person would know what it's like to feel on their own. Or if you're the new kid at school, you just haven't found your friends yet. Maybe it's started been a while and you still haven't got any friends. And Well, if that's you at your school, well, you know what it's like to be isolated and not on your own. Like this lady was. Why does Jesus go personal? Why does he open up this window into her soul and her past? Well, her ancestors went from God to God searching for satisfaction. And it seems like this woman is doing the same thing, but with men in her life. Going from one to the other. She's thirsty, but in all the wrong ways. Now, there's, now to, to be clear, when I say that she's thirsty in the wrong ways, I don't mean there's something wrong with the thirst in her soul. I don't mean she's wrong to want. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's no shame in loneliness. There's no sin in wanting connection and not having it. But in her longing and in her sadness, she's reached out for whatever, whatever most seems likely to fill the void. Even if that thing only fills it with disappointment again and again and again, as, well, it's a familiar thing to grab and to, to get me through the day. I mean, it's understandable. What else is she going to do? People who are floating in the ocean, dying of thirst, will sometimes drink the salty water, even though that will kill them faster. Now look, some of you sitting there will be able to find this, a thread of this and relate it to your own soul. 
you'll, you'll relate to what this is a little too deeply. It's close to home. Because these are the ways we cope. This is what we do. I want to encourage you. Because Jesus is here. For that woman and now for you as well. See, it's very, very close to home for this woman. And I wonder if that's why she deflects to a theological topic. I don't know if you've ever done that. Someone sort of starts to get all personal with you and you're like, I don't like where this conversation's going. So you'll find like a joke to like, just, just, just like sideline a little bit. Um, my, uh, oh, will I give it away? Someone that I'm related to, in-law, um, is brilliant at every time that happens. Like, oh, it's nice weather we've been having. Like, it's really obvious. It's, it's, a, it's great. So, it's, so it's, it's when she wants to change the topic, it's so obvious. And I think, I wonder if that's what she's doing here. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Look, our, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. This is the, the big contentious theological topic of the day. Remember, she can see Mount Gerizim from where they're chatting. She can see where that ruin, where those ruins are, where the Jews came and destroyed their temple. It is a plausible subject change. It's not as bad as my relative. And Jesus addresses the question. Isn't that cool? Like, he doesn't just say, hey, 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 don't change the topic. No, let's get back on your sore point and push the finger in deeper. He goes with her for a bit. He addresses, he answers her question. Look, he says, time's coming. It's time is coming when you will worship the Father, but it won't have anything to do with which mountain we're on. You Samaritans really don't understand God because God's plan is to save the world through the Jews. That, that was the plan to, from the very beginning. But a time is coming when the Spirit will come and there'll be true worshippers and they'll worship in the Spirit and in truth. They will not worship romantic relationships any longer, nor will they have to go to a geographic area in a temple. They will turn away from the power of money. They will not worship their own power, their own impressiveness. They will come to Him truly, honestly, as who they are, humbly in the Spirit and be filled. Time is coming, he says. And she says, yeah, oh, oh, I know Christ is coming. I, I, I know that one is coming. I, yeah, I know that. And he says, yeah, that's me. All these things are coming because I'm here. I'm the one who will fulfill all these things, meet all these needs and save the world as God promised to do. He says, I am the Christ. I sometimes listen to a podcast. Um, does anyone listen to podcasts Undeceptions? A couple of people might have heard that. A guy named John Dixon does it. They're, they're really excellent um, in, in like historical accuracy. Sort of. They're often on sort of history and Christian thinking and history of Christianity, stuff like that. And, but this week I was listening to one on Buddhism, which was kind of interesting, right? I was reminded again of, of, sort of some of the, the basics of Buddhism, which I'd originally studied a little while ago, but, but just sort of refresher. And it was really interesting. In Buddhism, you see, you, you rid yourself of your desires. This is, this is sort of the, the, um, the sort of noble tasks of Buddhism, one of them. Desires aren't something that you sort of decide, right, I'm going to work out how to fulfill it. You say, no, no, my problem is having the desire in the first place. If I stop desiring, then I'll just be happy because I won't have any needs. But here, Jesus is a pretty terrible Buddhist, right? Desires aren't something you run from, says Jesus. You've got, you, what you've got to do is match the right desire with the right thing. Desires are, are normal for Jesus. 
You've got to work out where you're going to get that desire filled. Uh, you know when you tell your mum you're hungry and she says to you, no, no, you're just thirsty? You've got to find the right thing that can assuage your thirst. And Jesus says, living water is the only thing that's going to fill the hole in your heart. Now, secondly, there's another point of distinction between Jesus and, and, and Buddhism. It's just, I just, it also struck by some differences. In all the Buddha's teachings... The Buddha was more John the Baptist than Jesus, if you know what I mean. Like, the Buddha was all about saying, well, look, it's not about me, but like, this philosophy is wise and it is good. And you know, pointing away from himself and towards the thoughts, even to the point where um, when the Buddha died, as the story goes, he was there and a bunch of his disciples are around and he dies and one of, some of his disciples are just mourning. They're really sad and they're like, oh, we're going to miss him. He's gone too soon. And then one of the disciples said, ah, oh, we're dishonoring the Buddha by mourning his death. Because we're not following his teachings. We're caring about whether he's here or not, which we shouldn't be. And so then they go off and do their spiritual philosophical, philosophical chat so that they don't end up grieving his death. And Jesus, Jesus is nothing like this. He doesn't say, I'm nothing. He says, no, I'm everything. I'm it. If you've got desires, you come to me. I can meet them. I, I, it's, not, it's not a case of you know, Buddhism where you're supposed to realize you don't even exist. Jesus is like, I'm not a nobody. I'm a somebody. I'm the somebody. And you are a somebody. And I see you and I care about you. And your needs and desires matter. Come to me because I'm enough to meet them. Please. It's about me. He's a terrible, terrible Buddhist. Different way of, different way of dealing with our desires. Now, in the story, we're up to the bit where Jesus' disciples come back. And, and the woman runs off back to town, gathering whoever she can convince to come back and see Jesus. And discussion, you know, turns from deeply spiritual matters and deeply personal matters with this woman to, you know, chatter about whether Jesus got some maccas or something and why he's not hungry. Someone bring him some food? And it's beautiful, really, because it's a moment where we see Jesus practicing what he's been preaching. I'll tell you what I mean. He has been putting his trust in and obeying his father and doing his father's work in ministering to this lady. And it seems to be strangely fulfilling for him, sustaining for him. The food that I have, I've been doing my dad's work and, he's, and I feel good. He's put his trust in God that he will keep him and sustain him. And it's worked. It sustained him. Just a little note. We'll get to it later. Now, look, I want you to imagine the scene, right? The, the people are starting to walk back from Sikar, the Samaritan town, across the mountainside towards Jesus. And Jesus starts talking about harvests. Anyone else think that was a weird change in scene when Jesus starts talking about four months and then the harvest? Oh, by the way, sorry, you can't even see this. Oh, yeah, there's, no, you can a little. They're the ruins of the temple, by the way, after they destroyed the temple on the other side. Um, and the background, yeah, so, so the, the close mountain there is Gerizim and the background mountain is Ebal, where they would have been, where Jesus and the woman would have been having their chat looking over at the other one. But here there's talk of fields. Talk of fields that are white for harvest. And I want you to imagine the scene as the people start walking from mountain to mountain or from the, from the valley up to the mountain towards Jesus. And Jesus starts talking about harvests. Some weird parable maybe they think. And he starts talking about the joy of the harvesters, the ones who get to work in the fields, 
drawing their wage, but also getting ending up, you know, they must have shares in the business because they end up getting to enjoy the fruits of their labor as the harvest comes in too, into eternal life even. And Jesus says, look, the fields are white, literally white for harvest. Now, I want you to stop and think, what would the disciples have looked up and seen as Jesus points and says, look, the fields are white for harvest. Samaritans walking through the fields up to him. The people of Sikar walking across the fields to meet them. There are people who have needs, says Jesus. Like this Samaritan woman. One of the, you, know, you know that one's got needs. That one just there. She's walking up. There are people with needs and I can meet them. Tell them. There's mission to be done. I can just imagine standing there and it, I, I almost hope that all the Samaritans were all wearing white or something like that, you know, that they had sort of white clothes. And what a powerful image he's left his disciples with as they go out to share the gospel for the rest of their lives after his death and resurrection. Now, there's a few things we need to take away from this. Brothers and sisters, first one is you are not built to work for yourself. You are built to do the work of God. See, Jesus is talking about the joy and the reward of the life lived in service of God's kingdom. It's such a sharp contrast to the person who's desperately seeking joy and fulfillment for their own heart. You see, the thing is, I think some of us come to church and we're thinking, so church finishes, right, the formal bit, and you think, okay, right, my, this is what my brain sort of instinctively wants to do, but what's the most socially inappropriate, sorry, most socially appropriate, ooh, okay, what's the, <laughs> that's not what my brain thinks. What's the most socially appropriate, least socially awkward situation that I can find? Is that what you think? Who's the person I can go to and it's most natural and I don't feel, I feel less anxiety? So I feel okay. I want to find my friends. Thank goodness Jesus didn't treat that woman like that. That was hugely socially awkward. So socially awkward that she says, hey, this is socially awkward. If Jesus hadn't done that, she wouldn't have had a hope in a million years because no one else would have gone to her. Um, when I was, uh, uh, some of you have heard this story before, bad luck. Um, <laughs> when I was on a Christian camp, uh, it was the same Christian camp that I'd originally uh, been sort of grown up in my faith in and found a bunch of friends for the first time. And I went to this camp so excited about seeing all my friends. It was so pumped. It was good, good desire. Christian friends want to be with them. And um, I go along, but I get to the session early. Imagine coming here and there's like one person sitting just in the middle of that section right over there. One young guy. And I'm like, ah, oh, he looks a bit lonely. All right, I'll go and sit with him. Go and sit down talking to him. His mates who invited him up didn't even come up themselves to the camp. So he's stuck there in camp alone for a day. Um, he only came up for one day on the camp. And um, so I just got to talking with him and eventually found out his parents are in the middle of getting divorced. And he's really depressed and he needs a mate. So eventually the, the, ser the service is about to start. So people start to file in. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go find my mates. But like we've been sat in, right? So people have filled all the seats. So if I get up and leave, like I look like the biggest jerk ever. Like I just, it would, it would be, if I felt too mean. So I stayed. I wanted to leave, but I stayed. I ended up just by God's circumstance, hanging out with him all day. 
just listening, chatting, caring for him, let him borrow a pair of shorts where we could go and play the soccer game together in the afternoon, hung out with him. He leaves and goes home. Wake up in the morning the next day. I am not finding one person alone in the auditorium to sit to. I'm going straight to my friends. I'm hanging out with them. I'm going to have a fun day today. I'm not doing ministry. I'm here to enjoy my... I've done my ministry. I'm here to enjoy myself. Those of you who are a bit older in your Christian walk might know exactly what happened that day. It was utterly empty as I sought to fill my own heart, to live for my own joy. It, it felt empty. And I reflected back on the first day and thought, gee, that was all right. Felt good loving someone else. And I worked out what I was built for. When Jesus says, I have food you know nothing about. And he talks about the joy of the harvesters. We do need to take responsibility for, collectively, for the people at our church who come in who are new or who haven't made lots of friends yet, or who have got one friend and yet we all leave them talking to that one friend because we know they've got that one friend so we don't feel bad about them because they've got the one friend. So the, and we even talk about them, oh, that's, that's your friend. This lady would have been very easy for Jesus to ignore. Talking to her was, in fact, the most socially awkward thing imaginable. Not comfortable and not to Jesus' benefit, but he worked to enfold her. And ended up through that actually saving a whole town. Brothers and sisters, we are not built to work for ourselves. We're built to work alongside our Father in his fields. Point two for us. Oh, sorry, that, that was the world mission. Um, I think this, the other thing for us is thankfulness. Because in the story, if we were to work out who are we... Um, in this story, I'm going to go all the way back a few slides here. We're not the Jewish people, the Jewish disciples of Jesus who are hanging around with Jesus. We're not even, we're not even the Samaritans, the half-breeds coming in who know a little of God. Unless anyone here has got Jewish blood, like we're the outsiders from the Gentiles. We're the people from the ends of the earth. We're the people way further away even than that woman. We're a long way from either Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and yet we can now worship God in spirit and in truth. You can, you can talk to God like he's right there with you, and he is. And that's a beautiful privilege. So be thankful, brothers and sisters. Remember who you are. We're the outsiders in this story. But also, some of us here tonight will be those people who are feeling unseen, unsatisfied. Maybe you felt distant from God. Maybe this is your first time in church for ages. Well, this woman was as far from God as could be, thirsty in all the worst ways. And Jesus saw her and loved her and offered to satisfy her need. And if you ask Jesus, he'll give you living water too. I'm guessing that we'll get to meet her in heaven. And our story will be the same as hers, won't it? He knew everything I ever did. And he saw straight through me, better than I saw myself. And I didn't have the option to hide or pretend or to, to dress myself up in clothes that make me seem acceptable. And yet he loved me and gave me living water. And so we need to drink deeply from him. Some of us here tonight are mucking around with other gods. Porn, sex, alcohol, romance, 
books, sport, money, the house, job, title, respectability, self-worth, academic record. Thank you, adding extra on to it, nice. Family stability. These things won't stop your thirst. They are sugar drinks that make you thirstier. But how do we stop? Because they're sugary and we go to them and they're familiar. How do we stop? Just trying harder will not help. We do it by being thirstier for Jesus, by going to him to have our hearts filled. If you think he won't fill my heart, well, the, Jesus is saying here, I will. You think, but I don't believe that. Well, I know, but he's, that's why you haven't gone yet. I get that. That's understandable. But now he's telling you he will. Trust him. He's, he's, he's contradicting you on that. When we don't go to him because we don't think he will fill our, our, our needs, he says here, no, everyone who drinks from that water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing him up for eternal life. You see, there's no point trying to stop yourself from eating mud cake by saying, well, I'm not going to eat any food at all. You just get hungrier and hungrier and the mud cake stays there and gets deliciouser and deliciouser. You need to eat good food or eventually you'll succumb. You need to drink deeply from the well of Jesus. It'll take time to get to know, time to enjoy him in all the ways that we wish we could. But he is where we get what we need. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, thank you for this woman Thank you for this woman who was, was poor girl, exposed uh, all of her history and her life. And yet, Lord, like us, I mean, you expose ours, it wouldn't be any different. And Lord, you saved her. You, you pointed her towards your son who could pour out the Holy Spirit, wash her clean, rescue her and satisfy her soul. Father, thank you for pointing us towards Jesus to satisfy our souls. Please, Lord, give us the wisdom to run to him. Father, we find it really hard to believe that he will give us what we need. But you are contradicting us here. You are saying that he will. And we ask you to make us more and more deeply reliant on him, thankful to him and trusting in him to give us the things that we need. And Lord, we thank you for the crazy thing that in that, even as we serve you and work alongside you in the fields, that you sustain us, that you do give us what we need. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.